0: I'm Tom, and I am a recovering alcoholic. I have been four and a half years recovering from having been 27 and a half years recovered. And I'll tell you a little more about that in a bit. You know, as Bill was telling this wonderful story, and I'd forgotten this story, I'm glad he told it. I was thinking this evening and earlier today about these meetings, as I so often do. This is a, a gathering of a strange breed of people. We've been called abnormal in a lot of circles. And not only have been, we're still called abnormal in a lot of circles. Weird. And uh, they say of us, those people gather and tell stories that wouldn't be believed nowhere else in the world. And evidently, they believe them all. Remind me of a marvelous story I've told recently to several people, and it's, it's reasonably new in my life. Like the little boy that went off to Sunday school came home. And his mother said, Johnny, what was Sunday school like? He said, well, you know, like every Sunday, they told us Bible stories. She said, well, what was the story? He said, well, they told us about a fellow named Moses. And they told him to go over to Egypt and get all the Jews together and bring them home. They'd been in captive. And he went over there and the Egyptians didn't want to let him go at first, but they finally let him go. Then they decided they'd made a mistake, so they started chasing them. But they was getting away and were doing fine until they come to the ocean, and then they started crying and hollering because they knew they were going to get caught. His mother said, Did they? He said, No, no, no. Said said, uh, Moses got on CB radio and called the Army engineers, and they built a bridge right across <laughs> the <place. laughs> She said, What? He said, Yeah. All the, all all, all the Jewish people got across and the Egyptians got out in the bridge and said, Moses got back on CB and called the Air Force and they bombed the bridge and all the Egyptians were drowned. (laughs) She said, Johnny, you know that's not true. He said, let me tell you something. You wouldn't believe that story they told me either. I think to the greater credit of the miraculousness of this fellowship it ought to be said again that this is also a meeting and a gathering of people in which God performs the everyday miracle. We're not different nor chosen and God didn't do new things with us. He just applied for us a great bit of love that has been going on since the beginning of time. But he applied it with the hands of those who understood us because they were like us. I heard the most beautiful explanation of what AA is recently. A man said that everybody who loved me, my family, my friends, uh, neighbors, everybody who cared about me would, would try so hard to help me and they'd say to me, Rick, why don't you change so we can love you? And he said, I wanted to change, and I couldn't, and they couldn't love me. One day God said, Rick, let me love you so you can change. As far as I'm concerned, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I've had people say to me, we've told our brother, our father, our son the same thing for years you strangers come along and he goes right off with you and does what you say. Why? It's because if we don't say it, he reads it in our eyes. Hey, man, we love you and understand. Come on, so you can change. And I'm grateful for the gathering like this. Because when I have this privilege, it makes me realize how much God loves you and loves me. I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous 35 years. I was in and around for some three years, a little over, without joining. Then I joined. And I had the most marvelous membership and fellowship in time for over 27 and a half years. Then I got in trouble. But a God that I had been taught to depend on by you, I know today would not let me go. And when I came back, people said, Tom, we're so glad you're back. My God, where would I go? I tried to drink for 36 hours deliberately. I didn't have a slip. I didn't forget anything. I just didn't care. And I couldn't get drunk physically, but I got mentally and emotionally, spiritually, horribly drunk. But I am so blessed. I'm one of the few people you know who's had the joy and privilege of going through this Blessed Fellowship twice. And I'm having more fun today than ever before in my life. Now, I also want to tell you that I think me and God going to make this all right. Most of you who know me well know that I am not supposed to be here tonight. I had stopped. Physically and emotionally, I'm not able to do this anymore because I'm totally disabled with emphysema. And I think we're going to make it all right. But if I have to stop and cough or breathe a little bit and catch up, just be patient To talk to each other until I get going again. And if it gets so I can't keep going, my sponsor's here. He'll finish my story for me. He came in seven minutes before the meeting tonight, and I had to change my talk. <laughs> I went into Alcoholics Anonymous not by choice. I'd had drinking problems a long time and had admitted privately to myself and to several other people, but never publicly to anybody, at least of all to anybody who knew me. I had dealt with myself as best I guess an alcoholic is able to deal with himself when he doesn't know anything about himself. Now, and that's weird sounding, but that's very normal, alcoholics. It's like our dear friend Talbot said about the buildings at Blackstone, said that whole place may be confusing to some people, but not him. He'd been thinking that way all his life.
1: <laughs>
0: I was traveling as a field engineer for a group of major insurance carriers, casualty companies. We were living in Chattanooga immediately following World War II. I had been sent to sea by a doctor who was going to send me away. You couldn't get anything to drink. They put me on a destroyer escort. An hour and ten minutes later, me and the laundroman was taking the first batch off of his steel.
1: <laughs>
0: he had it going when I got there. And isn't it funny? I found him immediately.
1: <laughs>
0: I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and gay and. Our one son was at home in Chattanooga. I called home on Wednesday, the middle of the week. And I reminded Gay that I remembered that the coming weekend was to mark our anniversary. And I wanted her to know I would not forgotten. It was a great day in my life, too, and I'd come home as early as I could on Friday. And if she and the little boy would get some things ready, we'd go somewhere in celebration. And Gay was very happy. One, because it was the middle of the week and I'd call home not drinking. Now look I had these spells occasionally. <laughs> I mean you you got to make a living some kind of way. Once in a while you just got to quit drinking and make it, that's all. It ain't easy. And secondly she was happy I guess because I remembered this particular day in our lives. And such was expressed and we hung up the phone and I sat there and I was in the old Hermitage Hotel in Nashville and I sat there in my room a few minutes and I I got saying you don't love her, and you've been very concerned about this drinking. Now a problem's not as bad as you've blown it up to be. A man with much of a problem wouldn't have thought to do a nice thing like this. You really haven't got that big a problem. You're entitled to a drink. Why don't you have one before you go to work? And I had my drink. And I got home on Friday of the following week. I had my first prolonged blackout. Five days and nights, Not one recollection. When I came to a week later in Nashville in another hotel, I began to try to put things together and I couldn't and that that desperation and, and, and desire to get home, you know, I don't know what had happened. Maybe there is no home, you know, but you start. I get it together and start for Chattanooga and all the way from Nashville to Chattanooga, suffering the agonies of hell with the granddaddy of all hangovers. I'm trying to think of another lie to tell. And I couldn't think of another one. Finally, I got to Chattanooga and parked the car and went into the house and and right after the war, and I had my office in the house because of a lack of space anywhere else. And I got myself sort of steel to come home, and I'd already also started that old arrogance to working. you know. Why am I trying to lie? Well, uh, uh, my arrogance worked because I couldn't think of another lie first. And I began selling myself. I don't know why I should be worried about coming home. It's my house. Uh, why should I worry about gay? And then what they got, they're living in my house, spending my money. Whatever they do, I pay for. You know, everything was me. But I had sort of steeled myself for the confrontation. And when I got there, I opened the door and kind of leaned in like you do, you know. And did nothing happen. She sat there, looked at me quietly. It's awful when you're expecting a storm and it don't come. She said, your boss said when and if you came home. Your boss. You were not to make a move until you called him. I went on back to the office thinking, boy, this woman has ruined me.
1: <laughs>
0: She's called my employer and told him about me. He gonna fire me. He ain't gonna get away with it. I just won't let him. I got on the phone and all that, you know, bravado sort of left. He came on the phone in New York City and I said, he said, Lee, where in the Tommy, where in the world have you been? Gay and I have called everywhere we know. You've not been in your territory, you haven't been on your itinerary, none of the clients have seen you, none of the jobs have, what happened to you? And I got a stroke of genius. I said, Lee, you know, in all the years I worked for you, I never lied to you. (laughs) I've been drunk for a week. And I left him speechless. I remember so well, really. It was like finding power. You know, hit people with the truth. They don't know what to do with it. Ain't nobody used to the truth. I
1: thought,
0: this is great. He said, L- you must have been working too hard. You don't say anything about that around that. I'm not going to say anything here. We just take this week out of your vacation. Boy, how easy can you get out? And then he said, have you ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? I stuttered a bit and said yes. I've had to admit it. Uh, sometime back, Gay had read the Jack Alexander article reprinted in Reader's Digest. It was the article originally done in Saturday Evening Post. And she was so hopeful with the news of this article. Gay knew our problem far better than I did. She'd gotten copies, papered our house with them. (laughs) You had to read it if you stayed there. I'd read it. Finally, one day she said, Tom, what do you think of that? I said, it's very interesting, Gay. Who do we know that needs this? So I admitted I heard of AA. He said, Well, you gay and I know a little about it. While we have been talking, we've also done some other phoning. Did you know to have AA meetings in Chattanooga? No. Meet Friday night. Now, when you hang up, gay's gonna call some nice people. They're gonna come and take you to the meeting tonight. And if you want to be working for me Monday morning, big boy, you better go. <laughs> And I hung up, and that was gay. If you want me here to send you to work Monday morning, big boy, you better go. (laughs) And I went. I first said, well, I'll just drive my car down. And then I got to think, no, no. If that crowd's meeting in downtown Chattanooga on Friday night, ain't nobody going to see me down there if I can help it. I wouldn't drive down there. I wasn't about to go get mixed up in this Salvation Army crowd, not me. The people came and got me, and we went. And I slinked into a building as quick as I could. We met in a room up over the Singer Sewing Machine store. A little bitty old room, dirty, peeling. About 10 or 12 people in there. When they got through, I, I, I didn't hear anything really except a lot of people lying. uh I resented being there. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I kept saying, I sure ain't like none of these. That guy over here talking about how many times he'd been in jail, and his arrest record long as his arm, and he's standing up there in a hundred-dollar suit in those days. I just a lie.
1: <laughs>
0: Went downstairs. The building had been locked up, and we had to go down the fire escape to go out. And and and, and of those ten or twelve people, I don't know, there a couple of Buicks, a Lincoln, a Cadillac drove away. I stood there and looked at this. Remember what I just heard. Now I'm smart, I'm wise. These people got a con gang going. don't nobody know about. I will see around fire what this is.
1: <laughs>
0: now you know it didn't take. I went to A when I had to. I just stayed on the road longer to keep from going. I lied to gay, I lied to my employer. I learned something though. The one thing that struck home with me, I perverted. I learned why I drank, and I didn't have to lie anymore about it. I could just hide. I could go home two or three days late off a road trip, stop gay in the tracks. I could say, it just seems to me, gay, you're never going to understand anything they've been trying to tell you at AA. You see, I'm going to AA, but she's not getting the message. I said, don't you understand, honey, I can't help this. I'm sick if you're sick you ain't responsible I don't have to lie about drinking anymore I'm sick I like that and I, I oh and I love that thing. you know And Gay don't get me upset they said that's the worst thing you can do to an alcoholic
1: <laughs>
0: years later Gay came home one day from her regular visit to her physician <laughs> they are four sons, and all four of us with the house, they and me. She came in, we were all together, and she said, I have something to say to all of you. My doctor said to me to come home and tell you that I've come to that place in my life, that the worst possible thing you guys can do to me is upset me. Don't ever upset me again. And she'd been waiting years to be able to say that to us. And I don't blame her. Well, they didn't take. But I made a sham of it. It was a good dodge. I could hide with it. I I hid enough, I guess, to fool my employer. I got promoted a few months later. We went to New Orleans, and I went as a Gulf Coast Supervising Engineer for my insurance group. We moved into the city of New Orleans on Mardi Gras Eve. That's in February. On July 4th, Gay and the boy were gone. I spent the night before in a place called Seaman's Rest. That's a mission for destitute seamen Used to be down on Decatur Street Wars. I was sitting in a park called Jackson Square. Two men from AA came to see where Tom was. It came because there was a woman up in Virginia who loved me dearly. Whose love, even alcoholism, could not destroy. And there was a little man up in Chattanooga named Bob Ivins who felt with all his heart I might make it. And both these, my wife Gay and Bob Ivins, were gone out in New Orleans, but they didn't stop begging people to help me, look after me, watch for me. And on this holiday morning, two guys went down to the club for coffee. One said to the other, I think I saw Tom up here, let's go up the street and see him and came up and sat down on either side of me on a bench in Jackson Square. They asked me if I'd had enough, and I said, yes, enough. I'd had all I wanted. I got out of there a little while I was in Virginia. My wife and child had gone home with my people. My father had sent me in reply a request through Traveler's Aid for Money a message that he didn't pay my way to New Orleans, that I'd forfeited my right in that home, my wife and child, and I had it. He didn't want to do this. He didn't have the choice. But we got that home reestablished. I had new employment in my field of engineering provided through the introductions of AAs. I went to my newfound friends in A.A. in Richmond and said to them, I want to stay sober. I don't want to drink. I've had enough of this. I like what you're doing here. There's a little something about this program that bothers me greatly. I don't know what to do about it. I, I, I'm i just not having anything to do with this God business. You see, I would say if you ask me, look, don't tell me about a God that can do this to me and you tell me how he loves me. I don't hear this. This room full of people that I've been to and they're in this sort of shape and they're alive and you're talking about a God that loves you? Don't believe this. What I really wanted to say to them, look, I believe in God, but I'm afraid I've forfeited my right. And I'm afraid to have you tell me I have. So I would affect the veneer, the facade of the alcoholic, jump over behind it and say, I'm not buying this God business. My friends then told me the biggest lie they've ever been told in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know they didn't mean to lie to me, I guess they've been told this too. I came along right about that period when they said to me, Look, you don't have to worry about this, Tom. If there's something about this program you don't like, you just throw it out the window. You just make out of this program what you want. Now, if anybody's told you that, you go back and tell them tonight that's a lie, that I can prove it. So I went home, and I did exactly what they said. I took the first step, and I could admit I was an alcoholic. I told everybody I knew I was. I had even admitted it sitting on bar stools during my, quote, slips. I, I, I'm going to tell you right now, in three years and hey, I never had a slip. I was drunk five times. I don't think you can slip off something you ain't got. And when people come and say, I had a slip, I said, well, let's see where you were when it happened. Most often, they were already out. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, some way. So, uh, I could admit I was an alcoholic, but at step two, I ran into the God thing. Three, four, you go all the way down to twelve. After the first step, it's all about God. So, I wound up with a one-step program. And I got drunk. I don't know anybody that could stay sober on a one-step program. Well, I went back, I, I'm not going through this long, I went back five times. And I'd get involved in some other, you know, anything but saying, all right, God, I quit. And finally that came. It came a time when I was too sick of me to keep on going. I backed off and began watching people in AA. And I, I spent three years fighting it, but something had happened to me. I didn't like me. And I began to look for people I liked. And I began to pick out some and a strange thing. They all had something in common. They had a thing that my friend Walter calls the light that shines from the soul through their eyes. We call it serenity, peace, happiness. Call it what you will. You find these people I'm talking about looking in their face. They all got it. They all got it. And I discovered a wonderful thing. They all had some sort of concept of God. And whether it was deep or shallow, they believed it. I went to one of those people, and he's now, he, he's, he's dead. I, when I use a name like this, I'm not breaking anonymity. I went to Jack White, first AA in the state of Virginia. Old Jack was nearly twice my age. I called him, went up to his office, sat down, and he said, What you want, Tom? I said, Jack, I made a horrible mess out of my life. I know. I've messed up my A life, I've messed up everything, I, I've done nothing right. I need help. And I want to know if you'll sponsor me and help me do this right. Old Jack said, I've been watching you, fella, and I, I was just kind of hoping someday you'd come around and yes, I'll help you. I'll help you if we go and do some things that, or you'll tell me you'll do some things I'm going to suggest we do. You tell me, Jack. He said, all right. First of all, you don't know much about AA. I said, Oh well, Jack, I've been, been in AA three years. He said, you ain't never been in AA. You've been around. So I'm going to suggest to you that you shut up and listen a while. You don't know anything worth saying. If you did, you wouldn't be sitting here in my office asking this. All right. We're going to get over this business about you and God. You're going to find some way to deal with this. All right. Will you help me? Yes, I'll help you. And then we got on down. He said, you're going to do this and uh, you're going to go to meetings. And you're going to go to a meeting when I tell you. Now, I'm going to take you to three meetings. After that, I'm going to call you up and tell you to meet me. And the night you don't meet me, hunt another sponsor. You meant it. He believed that after a while, the sponsor can wind up carrying an alcoholic instead of the message. I learned this too. So we started. As we talked at times, I said to him once, Jack, I, I wish somebody could teach me how to pray. I don't know how to pray. This is strange for me. I came up in a home that had family prayers at night when I was a child. I know how to pray," he said. "Tom, you, you you don't have to know how to pray. You just believe and pray." He said, "Let me tell you about my prayer experience." He was a patient in what was then the old Keeley Institute in Greensboro, North Carolina, it was many years ago. He was a patient because he now lived in Keeley Institute. He couldn't stay sober outside. He went there, moved in, ran his business by mail from Keel Institute, what was left of it. One night, as they were getting patients ready for bed, the old nurse said, Mr. White, you seem to have tried everything. Did you ever try praying about this problem? He said to her, I don't know anything about prayer. She said, you must know some prayer. Well, he said, I remember a prayer my mother taught us as a child. Now lay me down to sleep. He said, that the old nurse went out of the room throwing over her shoulder. That may be enough. And he said, you know, after a while, Tom, I'm a man up in his fifties. I got out of my bed and got on my knees and prayed, now lay me down to sleep. It's the only prayer I knew. I didn't know it well enough to pray it right. When I got to the part asking God to keep my soul, I prayed if I should die before I wake. I prayed the Lord my soul to take. I believe that's the way it ought to be prayed. If I should wake before I die, is the way we alcoholics have to live. But he said I'll tell you how good the prayer was. I haven't had a drink since. Now that's 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 praying. I could pray. I could buy this, and I could go off by myself and quietly say, God, I don't know if I know how to do this. All I can do is tell you that you know who I am and you know what I need. And I'll admit to you, I don't know where else to go. Well, life began good for us. I began my long trip of sobriety. I selfishly found out that if I was going to need to be this close to God, I needed to be where God was with me every moment. I made my decision to enter the ministry of the church. I went back to school, had a wife and three children. We had twin boys born right after I got back to Virginia. I didn't have any money. I went up to a college to finish some undergraduate work so I could qualify to get to seminary. The president the college asked me if I had any money. I said, no sir. I not only really don't have any money, I got $7,000 worth of bad checks scattered over Louisiana, Mississippi but we're paying them off as best we can. He said, I I wonder why God don't never call anything but poor boys to the (laughs) ministry." He said, Tom, uh, amazing thing. He said, some friends of yours had understood you were coming up here to see about enrolling to study. They came to see me a few days ago. They told me if you came here that They knew you were going to have needs. And they wanted me to administer whatever the needs were and to assure me that you and Gay and the boys were to have everything you needed as long as you were studying for the ministry. I said, who were these friends? He said, no, I can't tell you that. I buried them both. Let me tell you something. I never had to go to the president's school and get one dime. What a marvelous thing to have friends who love you. Enough to make you know it was there if you needed it. See, the reason I didn't have to go, God was showing me you could do things, you know. Here is the... Get these two pictures. was the engineer. You know, I had a boss once told me that an expert was just a man from out of town with a briefcase.
1: <laughs>
0: Here's the expert checking in the Roseville Hotel with his family on a fifth account in New Orleans. And fussing because he don't like the room. Here's the engineer driving an oil truck at 2.30 in the morning up number one highway trying to make enough money to eat. But I learned you can do this. And we had a great life. My ministry was good. My A life was good. We were blessed and privileged in so many ways. Fourth little boy came in our life. Why wasn't it enough? I don't know for sure. Some five, five and a half years ago, I became very ill with this stuff. Going to pulmonary people. They finally told me, Reverend Love, you just well make up your mind. You're through working, you got to quit. Your heart's good now, but it's not going to stand up for you. You're just disabled for any activity, and I am. I have 38% of normal breathing capacity. <clears throat> I said, All right. I'll start making my plans to retire. I went to my church, I went through everything they said, and listed myself a disability. Didn't know that inside I was building a resentment that wouldn't quit. I was resentful at my wife and my sons who were doing everything they could to make this easy for me. I was resentful at my doctor. I was resentful at God for letting it happen to me. But we went on with it, moved out of our parsonage and into a little place over in Luray. Some few weeks after I moved, I was told by an administrator in the pension fund of my church that Some terrible error had been made and that I didn't have any disability pension. My world came apart. And I found a bottom lower than the one that brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody had ever told me about this bottom, but you see, I didn't know anybody to tell me. I suddenly did not care. I didn't forget Gay and her love and her attention to me through 40 years of marriage. I just didn't care. I didn't forget my four sons, their love of their father. I just didn't care. I didn't forget my sponsor and his wife. I was with him 12 hours before I began this stuff. I'd already begun it when I saw him the last moment. I didn't care. I just didn't care. Until I began to care, and I went up on the mountain beside my, my house, Gay was at her mother's, who was quite ill, and I carried a pistol up there, and I was going to call Stepped the sheriff on the CB and told him to come up there. Said I'd come up on a terrible accident. But when he got there, I was going to be the accident. And I came to myself sitting there with my CB radio on the pistol in my lap. I'm not being dramatic. I'm just telling you that all I could do was scream, My God, what am I doing? That was enough of a prayer. I came down my mountain and drove in my yard. And as I drove in, Dot and Ken from Pittsburgh drove in right behind me. It wasn't a half hour my sponsor was in my living room. Before morning, I had heard from California all over the United States. All these people said, hey, Tom. Hey, friend. We love you more than ever. You can change quick. We love you. That's how it was. That's what happened. This is how it is now. You know you get a hour back tonight, don't you? I think you don't mind, I'll take it now. <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> the next six months after this experience became a time of penance, searching, agonizing. No person has ever disliked himself as much as I did me. I began to have to find God in ways I'd never known Him before. And I found out I'd always known this about Him. He just began reappearing. You see, the God I knew and that I know today greater than ever is the God I want you to know. It's the God that my big book said to me, may you find Him now. First of all, it was a loving God. And I just want to hit three or four little quick highlights, with you? Somebody else had to teach me everything I know about God. I learned that God was a loving God through a man whose wife came to me on a Palm Sunday and asked me to come and see because he'd been in bed drunk five days. Hadn't been out of bed five days, been drunk God knows how long. And I went with him. I didn't know him. And all the way to his house, I drove... Behind her, I got to thinking, I wish this guy waited till Monday. It's Palm Sunday and I'm busy. Wonder why he didn't do this last week, you know. Alcoholics. I get more calls at 3 o'clock Sunday morning than any other time. That's a terrible time to call a preacher.
1: <laughs>
0: One woman called me and said, he doesn't really call me for several weeks. 2 o'clock Sunday morning. Said, our preacher told us to get in touch with him and said, could you tell me how to make my husband quit drinking? I to kill him. Jay said, you better quit telling people this guy's act You're right (laughs) But I went, and when I went in the man's room She had forgotten to tell me that he was a hopeless cripple that were these cruel metal things leaning against the foot of the bed with which he it didn't walk, just shuffled. I stood there and lost a little speech I had all canned and ready for. It. I'd already said to myself, I'll have to hurry, see if he means business, tell him good, you'll be back. I walked over the bed and while I was trying to think of something to say, the poor devil said to me, why'd you come? I heard my sponsor saying, because I love you. You see, my sponsor rode about the city with me in his car, and a young man out of his office carrying him the last few hours he lived to tell people goodbye and thank him for being his friend. We got back to his hospital room, he got in the bed, and before I left him, he said, Tom, don't ever forget, I love you. Thank you for letting me be your sponsor. A man thanked me for letting him save my life, because he loved me. That was my sponsor that said to Dick that day in his bedroom because I love you. We got him out of there in an hour or two, got things arranged. She took him to Richmond, got him in the hospital. He was terribly dehydrated. The agreement was that when they came back, she call me and we'd get together and start a fellowship. A couple of Sundays later, I'd not heard from him. I'd already pulled through the church. Into the back of the church came his lovely wife, Dick. <coughs> he just shuffled in and helped him in a pew and he sat down. It was Communion Sunday, and I'm bad for taking God's business over. I began to think, I wish he'd come next Sunday. I don't get to preach today. It's Communion Sunday.
1: <laughs>
0: if he'd come last Sunday. He could have used that one, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: when I on my service, we came to the time of offering the elements and Holy Communion. In my church, the congregation comes forward and kneels about the altar. About the second table, I was aware that he was getting out of the pew, and I thought that it been too much. They're going home, and I must see him as soon as this service is over. But to my surprise, he didn't go home. He came shuffling down the center of the church. He got before the altar, and I came there with the elements of the sacrament. He could not kneel. He leaned over on these metal contraptions. His wife knelt beside him. She reached up and took the wafer from the cup, gave it to him. And as he took it in his shaking hand and she helped him drink it, he looked in my face. He said, and I love you. God don't owe me nothing. I buried Dick up just not too long ago. But Dick spent the rest of his life around McGuire Hospital helping paraplegic alcoholics find answers. He never had another dream, 23 years. I know today that that's the God of love. I needed to know him in a greater way. I was hurting bad in this time, and I needed a healing guard. My wife, Jay, was right in the hospital in this town over at old Richmond, over at old Roanoke Memorial. She, she'd had a sinus operation that had become far more detailed than anybody expected. Almost two days, she'd been hemorrhaging. I came into her room, and she was just agonizing. And as I walked in on this afternoon... The doctor and a nurse came rushing out of the room. They went up the hall and I followed them and I asked the nurse what was wrong. She said, Reverend Lover and has found a blood clot just behind one of his lover's eyes. We don't know whether it's loose or not. We're going to have to get her to surgery as possible and try to catch it. I said, well, is it bad? I said, well, the worst thing is that in her state I cannot give her anesthetic." I went in and gave a client she had about all she could stand. I walked out on the hill, besides behind that hospital. Then you remember the old building. You could go out almost every floor. Stood back in those pine trees in the gentle rain. I said, God, again I quit asking you for much for ourselves. You've been too good to us. We've asked you for a lot of other people, and you've always answered us some kind of way. But now I've come about another matter. I'm here to claim your promises. I'm here to prove you. My love had all she can have. you got to do something. I went back in and held in my hand. I came and got her. It went away. I settled down on the floor to wait her. Coming back, I knew it would be quite a while. In 20 minutes, it the elevator door, but she came rolling out on her gurney, propped up on her elbow. All the packing was gone out of her nostrils. The hemorrhage had stopped. She said, I'm going home tomorrow. A few minutes he was in a room, the doctor came in, he picked up something, looked at it, looked at her, looked at me, and put it down. Walked around the room, finally he said, Reverend Lovin, I'm a good doctor. I said, I know you are doctor, you wouldn't be Miss Lovin's physician if you weren't. He said, I don't make this kind of mistake. I said, Doctor, don't think you made a mistake. He said, I must have. We didn't find a thing in the world but a pinhead strip of dried blood. There's no blood clot. Healing God. That's not so miraculous. Look around the room. Where do you think your healing came from? A forgiving God. My oldest son was the only one of my boys who remembered so much about his father's alcoholism. I stood one morning before daylight in a room in Ohio with him. I brought him away to school and I was getting ready to go home and it had already been a sad times as it is when your firstborn leaves the nest. I stood in that room and I looked at this big fellow. I had such an urgency to urge to go over and put my arms around, kiss his cheek and try to tell him how sorry I was for those years of hurt. Oh, we'd grown to respect each other and to have a, a pretty good relationship, but it was still something missing. It wasn't what I wanted. It was not all the father-son relationship I hoped we could have. <clears throat> I loved this young man. I stood there and hesitated. Maybe I was embarrassed. I don't know. It's because he was bigger than me or what. But as I stood there in my hesitancy, he suddenly walked across that darkened room, put his arms around me and kissed my cheek. Told me how proud he was of me and that everything was all right. Forgiving God. Forgiving God. And I wanted to make sure that this God was going to live on and on. My youngest son, Michael, was with us at a presentation of the Passion played out in Central Florida. We watched this great thing unfold on an amphitheater stage. <clears throat> Michael got sort of caught up in the performance. He about five years old and he just couldn't be very quiet. He got to telling me what was going on. We had the boys sitting next to us, and I thought we could tell them what was. When they had the Jesus before Pilate's court, Jesus, Uh Michael said to me and several people around could hear him, said, Dad, they're telling lies about Jesus. And the little fellow was really hurt when the crucifixion came. I, it was depicted so real that I began to wonder if we'd made a mistake. in bringing him there. They took down Jesus' body and entombed it. The lights went out, and that place was pitch black. So quiet, so still. All of a sudden, the great flashes of light and trumpets sound, the roll of thunder, and the stone was rolled aside. And there stood the figure of Joseph Meyer, who depicted the Christs in the white robes with his arms upraised. My little Michael said, so they could hear him eight rows away, "Look, Daddy, God made him all alive again, living God." Living God. My twin sons, not to be left out, walked down a church aisle one Sunday morning when I begged the church to let's try to get it back together. Start new because I somehow felt I'd failed them or maybe we just hadn't met each other's needs. I said to them, If you let us try again, come down here and give me your hand. Nobody moved. It almost broke my heart. Those little teenage boys got out of that pew. Their mother was homesick. They walked down. They didn't give me a the hand. They walked around and got inside the chancel, stood on either side of me, and looked at the congregation. When they did, some people came. And I knew right then that I never had to be anywhere, that God wasn't there. My family and my friends have taught me all the faces and facts of God. That's the God I know. I ought not to be surprised. Years ago, there was a man named John Newton. He was so depraved on drugs and alcohol, and in his day, drugs meant opium. John Newton was kept like an animal in a padded cell-like room with a chain around his neck. Once in a while, they'd bring him out and lead the chain. He'd run around all fours like a dog. Bob, create annex to entertain other depraved souls. But somehow through the fog of all this, John Newton heard a voice of God say, Come and let me love you. You don't have to be like this. He heard a voice of salvation for his needs. John Newton somehow came out of that place. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace after that. That's the kind of God this boy taught me. Now, I, I, I thank God for this night. He's he done it again. I know that I'm about through doing this. It doesn't mean I'm going to quit. I just going to have to sit and listen. But I want to publicly thank you, my brothers and sisters, my families, for having kept alive God in my life yours. For having never shut a door on me. For always being that when I needed you. And for letting me come here tonight. Search my own soul again. God bless you.